Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Professor John Osterhout is the creator of the Tickle Programming Language, a professor of computer science from Stanford University, and the author of the book, A Philosophy of Software Design. Professor Osterhout joins us from Palo Alto, California. John Osterhout, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Well, I'm glad to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, let me just step back a bit and say, first, when you approached me about the idea of doing a podcast on maintainable software, my first thought was, I might not have a whole lot to say because what I'm really interested in is software design. But after thinking about this a few minutes, I realized, well, actually, if you think about the whole purpose of good software design is to make it easy to maintain a software, to continue to develop it and fix bugs and add features and so on. And so with that, then I believe the key idea in maintenance is to continue to try and strive for a great design. You know, often we're stuck maintaining software that doesn't have such a great design. And so in that case, I would say the primary goal of, of maintenance is to try and improve the design so the software becomes easier to maintain later on. And then similarly, the, the primary goal of designers is to try and set things up so that that maintenance is easy. As someone who works in a field where I'm in the consulting world myself and run an agency that we always take on new projects. We don't do a lot of new builds very often. So most often we're kind of in this space of being having to take over and make sense of what the software design intentions were, maybe occasionally having the opportunity to actually speak to the original developers, more often than not, no. And there's maybe limited documentation and a bunch of other challenges that come along with that. So there's always this interesting balance of like, how do you, do you trust that the design was good in the first place because it seems to be working? There's someone sees value in continuing to invest in it, but there's this tricky thing of being, how do you start going back and improving on something if you don't actually know if it's been well-designed in the first place? Well, I, th- I think it's a pretty safe assumption that even if it was designed well in the first place, there are numerous flaws. There were flaws even in the face of good design, but then, of course, over time, flaws tend to build up in software. So my viewpoint in terms of maintenance is that you should be extremely suspicious of everything. You know, trust nothing, verify everything. And you should assume that there are many opportunities to improve the design. That because it is written the current a particular way right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way it should have been written or that it should be written for the future. And one of the topics that I was looking forward to speaking with you about, kind of related to this, is is around the aspect of quality software programming, which is what you discussed as problem decomposition. For the audience listening, could you help us by better define that, what that is? Can you maybe provide an example or two? Well, problem decomposition is the idea that we want to make something that is very complex actually less complex to manipulate. We're trying to hide and isolate complexity. And so the idea in problem decomposition is to somehow decompose the problem so that instead of having one massive, enormously complicated, interrelated hunk of spaghetti code, you instead have a whole bunch of smaller things, whether they're modules or classes or methods within a class, each of which 
can be understood and manipulated relatively independently so that you only have to face a small amount of the total system complexity at any given point in time. So to me, that's, that's what it's all about. It's all about managing complexity, trying to but eliminate complexity, and where we can't eliminate it, then try to compartmentalize it. Is there such a thing as getting too granular when it comes to making things, breaking things down into smaller pieces? Well, yeah. So the, the key idea of the pieces is that they need to be relatively independent. So when I'm working in one piece, I don't have to understand, well, ideally, I wouldn't have to understand any other pieces. That's over-optimistic. Ideally, I only have to understand a small number of other pieces. And so if you break down too far, you start discovering that, well, you've made the pieces smaller, but in fact, in when I'm working in each piece, I actually have to understand a whole bunch of other pieces. And at that point, there's really no advantage in, in breaking it up. In fact, you've probably made things worse at that point. So like when you're so when people are like thinking about this and going through some existing code and they're like trying to make sense of what they might think of spaghetti code because they don't have their whole kind of head wrap around the you know, how, how things are all interconnected because software can be really challenging to do that. And it's not, well, maybe out of curiosity, as a professor, do you find there's good ways to teach people these types of skills? Or is this something people need to learn just from like trial and error and figuring things out over a period of time? The truth is that we don't actually make any attempt to teach people, in fact, teach people maintenance of any sort. And I think the problem you're getting at is how do you reverse engineer the design of a system that you go into when it may not be very well documented, and so it may be hard to see that design. And I have to say, one of the biggest frustrations to me is when I go into a system and I can tell that it was well designed, but the designers did not bother to write down enough of the key aspects of the design for me to figure out what that design actually was. And that's really frustrating because that's a case where the designers did most of the work to make really easy to maintain software, but they didn't bother to document it so anybody else could figure it out. And I don't know, I don't have any magic formula for how you reverse engineer the design if it's not properly documented by the people that built the system. I've, I've been doing that a little bit myself. For example, I've been doing a lot of work in the Linux kernel lately trying to add a new network driver. And the kernel code is actually relatively clean, but it's not very well documented. Uh, for example, there will be acronyms where it, I would give $100 just to know what this acronym meant because it would save me so much time. I, and I could tell it's something useful, but I have no idea what these three letters happen to stand for. No, I can appreciate that. That's uh, getting in there and making sense of understanding what the original intention was and why they did things the way they did it. And a lot of that stuff just probably persists in people's heads while they're working on it. I always feel like, is, do you feel like in, in the education process, I, I'm not someone that went through computer science classes and graduated. In that, I'm kind of like, a, I picked up some books and stuff like that when I was in the late 90s, early aughts, and figured a little bit out of a time, go, oh, I think I can kind of do this. And But I've always been curious, like, I know they don't teach a lot of things about maintenance, but what about when it comes to writing, like describing and documenting things? Do you feel like that's something that's well discussed and trained in the, in the industry? Uh, again, in academia, not in very many classes. So one of the unusual things I do is I teach a software design class at Stanford. I think it's the only class of its type in the entire world that actually teaches software design, not programming techniques, not the syntax of class-oriented stuff, not software development, but really the art of design. Nobody teaches it because the faculty themselves 
by and large, haven't done very much programming. And they don't actually know enough to teach it. So we don't teach a lot of that. And actually, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned the term persists in the design persists in the minds of the designers. I think that's actually an oxymoron because the simple fact is it doesn't actually persist in the minds of the designers. I, I think you've got somewhere between three and six months of persistence, and then it's gone. And this is one of the big fallacies. People think, well, people can just come back to me later and ask questions. They don't know what's going on. But that doesn't actually work in practice. No, that's, that's true. And about an hour ago, I was pinged on a, in, by one of our developers and a project manager to ask about something on it that I was working on, I think, maybe three or four months ago. And I was like, oh, I think I got to this point. And then when we looked at the code 30 minutes later, I was like, oh, I didn't even remember that I did all that stuff. Like, I don't remember what I did a few months ago, let alone a couple of years ago. I think that's a, it's an interesting thing where, like, thinking about capturing, what's, what sort of things you think would be helpful for, for those listening that might be working on a project right now where they're, they, are making, they are doing some, some design at the moment and the architecture and such? What would an ideal output look like? Sometimes I wonder if people haven't seen what good output looks like because they're not the ones needing to consume it necessarily. So like, I think this is me getting it out of my head, but is this actually going to get into someone else's head as a whole nother part of the equation? You don't know until you actually like have someone get up to speed with it somehow. Yeah, I think this gets at the art of writing good comments. And the first step is to reach an understanding that good comments are really important. I think a lot of people don't actually appreciate that. And then the second step is to know how to do it. And the problem is that a lot of the documentation that's written is actually not very good documentation, which of course reinforces the viewpoint that why bother writing documentation, but also there's not a lot of good examples to look at. And so the general philosophy, uh, I think of for documentation is documentation should tell you things that are not obvious from the code itself. That's the key, to recognize the code tells you some things. There's a lot of information in the code, but there's a lot of information that's not in the code. For example, when you're documenting an interface, such as to, a, say, a method, and, and this is some of the most important documentation, really the only code people have to look at besides your documentation is just the, the prototype for the method, tells what the types of the arguments and the results are. They, we don't want people to have to read the code of methods to actually figure out how they work. And so anything anybody needs to use that method that isn't obvious from the names and types of the arguments and result, you sort of have to document, have to document. Now, people will sometimes say, that would be a huge amount of stuff I'd have to document. And then I would say, ah, that's a canary in the coal mine. That's telling you something that you probably have a really complicated interface, right? The best interfaces are those where, in fact, you can completely describe everything people need to know in a very small number of words. So anyhow, I, I think of it that way. And maybe, and maybe as you have personal experience, as you're reading other code and you think, I don't know what's going on here. I can't tell X from the code. Well, think about what X is. And that will give you an example. That's documentation somebody probably should have written. And so I think the best way to learn how to write documentation is to be aware as you're reading poorly documented code and think about the kinds of things you wish you knew in order to understand it. That's a good exercise there. I'm always curious around, like when, when I'm working with our people on our team, I like to run this exercise from time to time where I say, this is the last day you're going to get to work on this project. You're gonna, and all you can do is at the end of the day is you're going to write up a short email hopefully a short email, to someone that you're not going to get to meet. They're starting in two weeks. You're leaving today. You're never going to touch this code again. 
what things do you think they're going to need to know today? And then have them write like out an email or a little letter or something, a letter to a future developer. And then I'm like, great. Now just send that to yourself in like two weeks when you, you know, you come back from vacation and like, how can we make this stuff more obvious in, in the code base or in our automated testing? And I come from like the Ruby world where kind of there's like this like interesting area where we're like, wow, we can write very expressive code and it should tell you what it does because, but it's very granular. Right? It doesn't really talk about the big picture, I suppose, on the project. And so you're like, all right, we got like 120 models in this application. How does this all piece together? And like, it's complicated to like wrap your head and it's very intimidating to people to come in and join those projects without any historical context or even knowing if you can rely on the documentation because I think documentation tends to be hard to produce in the first place or it's seemingly hard because you don't know if it's going to be used, one, so is there any value? And if you don't use documentation when you're working on projects and don't lean on your own documentation, then you start to see, not see the value in it or not, not be able to find the documentation or search through documentation. There's a lot of excuses that I think that we have as software developers for why maybe it's not worth it at the moment. You'll come back and maybe do that if something is not obvious to someone in the future, but that's it, I don't think that happens anywhere near as much. And maybe there's a promise of like, if we write automated tests, that'll help explain how these things are supposed to be used, but it still maybe is a little too granular. There's a whole bunch of thought-triggering statements in what you just said there. First of all, another one of these great oxymorons is that the, the three great lies, the check's in the mail, I'll call you, and I'll come back later and write the documentation. I've known many, many people who have said, I'm too busy right now, I need to get this one thing finished, whatever the reason is, but I'll come back and write the documentation later. And in all my years of programming, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody who actually came back and wrote the documentation later. And by the way, I've been one of those people myself. And I just come to, came to realize that, you know, if, if now is not a good time to write the documentation, when I'm right in the middle of working on the code, when is there going to be a better time? And the answer is never. So, so you just have to do it now. A second thought I want to say, this idea of the email to yourself, I think that's a great idea. But rather than do it as an email, find a place in the code to put that information. Because emails get lost, you know, or, or it's in your mailbox, but it's not in the mailbox of the next developer to come along. I think you've got to find a way to get this interesting stuff back into the code base so that other people will have that immediately available in the future. And I think one of the most important things about writing documentation is to find the right place for it. You want to put the documentation as near as possible to the code that it relates to so people will find it and also so that if somebody changes the code, they're maximally likely to see the documentation and update that as well. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Do you talk much with students around the concept of like what the definition of done is on 
a feature or a test to does it sort of accounts for things like documentation or tests? My personal view again is that there is no done. I mean, there's maybe done for now, but software's never done. And so that's another reason why you can't wait until things are done. I think that you just have to do it while you're in the process of doing other stuff. That's fair. The my company, we bring on interns that are usually coming out of boot, coding boot camps, things like that, almost like every quarter. And one of these, these conversations I already have with, I always have with them is like just reminding them because I don't feel like it's covered enough that like your first job probably at a software company isn't going to get to be you're there on day one when they start building from scratch like a new project. The fact that they can hire you likely means that they've already invested in some software technology that's been written that you're going to help them maintain and continue moving forward. So I think it's, you know, I'm really curious to hear how you're talking through this with students so that they're aware that the reality isn't that you're not going to necessarily be get to be the designer day one. You get to be part of like a, the follow-up team that's coming in and, and helping provide maintenance and support and iterating on those ideas. So how, what sorts of things are you doing in your, in your course that kind of helps people understand that? So that when they don't show up a little shocked and be like, I thought I was going to be writing new features all the time. Yeah, again, that's a subject we don't tend to address a lot in our courses. I, I warn students when I talk to them in person. And of course, they tend to find this out very quickly when they go off and do their first summer internship because they're typically not writing new code for the first summer internship. There's some kind of maintenance or, or small bug fixes or new features on existing stuff. So again, that we address almost nothing related to maintenance in our classes. And I don't have a good excuse for that. That's, it's clearly something that's very important, but it, right now it's something we don't touch on very much. I always, I'm always curious about how this applies to other industries that are, you know, like other sorts of trades where you're picking up on things and working on, if you're an electrician, I don't know that your first thing is going to be to set up the new electricity in, in a building as it's getting built. It's like, how are you going to extend or improve the electricity in a building where it's at now, right? And it's not always a new building. And so there's a lot of com comparisons to like building things, like physical things to building artific, uh this nebulous thing that software. Do you feel like there's like a there's a lot more overlap than I think we give ourselves credit for between these industries, or do you feel that there's still like a pretty strong difference between them? I think software is different from almost other engineering disciplines because it's so malleable and changeable that it means it tends never to die. Whereas in virtually all other fields, at some point, you just have to rip things out and redo it. You know, when, when you remodel a room, they typically rip out all of the wiring and put all new wiring for that room. Whereas with software, we rarely do that. We try and patch it and add features to the existing system. And so software has this very unfortunate feature that it doesn't die. One of my favorite sayings is that the most important component of evolution is death. Because in general, whether it's a biological system or a social system or an engineering system, it's generally easier to build a new system from scratch than to make major changes to an existing system. And if you think about your body, you have, you have these antibodies that are floating around your bloodstream whose job is to find any foreign DNA and attack it and kill it, you know, to prevent any change to the organism. But when we have sexual reproduction, where you mix genes together and produce new people, that's a tremendous way of actually inducing change into a species. And with software, we don't really have the opportunity to do that rebuilding very often. We're stuck trying to maintain existing systems. And so I think, I think software probably tends to build up cruft 
more than any other engineering discipline I can think of because we tend to try and patch and move forward rather than rip out and replace. I think that's a that's accurate, at least from my experience. How, how do you in your courses do you talk much around like the concept of technical debt at all, or is that I definitely talk about that. Yes, I definitely talk about that in my software design class. And actually, I wanted to bring that up in the context of maintenance also. So one of the most important things in software design, and I think it's true for maintenance as well, is your mindset. Do you have a tactical mindset or a strategic mindset? And when I say tactical mindset, what I mean is you're trying to get the current thing done. You know, I have a bug to fix or a new feature to add. And probably under pressure to do it. And so you want to get it done as quickly as possible. And so it's really easy to tell yourself, well, I'm, I'm going to mostly do this right. You know, I'll do a good job. But if I have to make just a little tiny kludge over in this corner here, I have, to, I have to cut a corner over this other place to get things done faster, that's fine. You kind of rationalize that in your mind. The problem with that is that those kludges and cut corners just accumulate tremendously. Because not only are you doing it, but everybody else on the project is doing it. And that's how systems become really complicated. You know, complexity is not one fundamental bad decision you made. It's a whole bunch of little tiny decisions you made that all add up. So if you want to have a good design, and if you want to maintain software properly, I believe you need to think strategically. And by that, I mean, of course, you have to build things that work. Working still counts. But that's not enough. Working is not enough by itself. The goal is to try and create a good or at least a better long-term design so that it's easier to maintain code in the future. This, this tactical approach I mentioned, that's how you build up technical debt. You're effectively borrowing from the future, making your future development slower in order to get this current thing done today. And so I'd argue you have to resist that and try and spend a little bit of extra time today investing in a way that will make it easier to maintain in the future. And, and my belief is that if you do that, then over the long term, you'll develop much faster. Well, I think it's interesting. I'm just thinking about like a general software projects backlog or list of things that to be done, whether those be fixing bug, you know, bugs or iterating on like a feature in an application, adding a new button, whatever the, the case might be. And sometimes I wonder if a lot of those tactical, the way you're describing tactical solutions where maybe is getting the thing done because you're reacting to something that's wrong and you want to like maybe there's a bug and like the quickest thing we can do is try to patch this thing up and get to the ship so the the person that asked about it stopped asking about it and then I can get back to what I was really trying to focus on was maybe thinking that now I can get back to the strategic thing that I'm working on but you've just introduced some more maybe some more technical debt into the equation every single time that you switch context back and forth because it caught you off guard like I know that I'm speaking a little bit from my own perspective that I love putting out fires, but I I do not liking up like enjoy the uh, the final part of that process, which is like writing up what happened and why did it happen and what did we do to figure out how to solve it and but how do we make sure this never happens again? But I I get the endorphin drive from fixing the thing and shipping it quickly and like, cool it's done where I can get back to what I focused on, but then there's still this other the rest of the process that we need to follow to capture what, what our lessons learned there and what do we need to go back and improve upon before we consider this actually done or not? I think what, what I would argue is that you should try and be strategic as much as you can, even when you're making these fixes. Now, I, I understand the pressure 
can be very great to get something done quickly. In fact, maybe the pressure is so extreme, you really just have to get something done quickly. But even when that happens, I'd argue negotiate to see if you can find some time so that once you've got the fix out there to solve the problem, you can then spend a little bit of extra time to clean it up and make it so that fix is not adding to the technical debt of the project. And the way I like to think about this, when I go in and make changes to software, ideally, I think what should happen is that after you're done with your change, the system looks the way it would have looked if you had designed it from the very beginning, knowing everything you know today. That's the ideal. Now, that isn't feasible in many situations. And you know, it might take a huge refactoring to achieve that, for example. But that should be in the back of your mind to try and get as close as you can. Uh, one of the things I hear about people doing maintenance is they're told or the, the, the culture of the organization is make as few changes as possible. You know, achieve the goal with as few code changes as possible because I think typically people are worried that the more code changes you make, the more you are likely to break something. I'd push back a little bit on that one also. Try and do it the right way. And in fact, one of my views is every time you're going to make a change, if you possibly can, you should try and fix something that's broken. Not just, not just the thing you're doing, but fix something to clean something up. Because the odds are you're probably introducing at least a tiny kludge here or there. And so if you just want to break even, you have to fix something else. Now, some organizations say, well, they won't let you do that. Say, no, no, that's not related to the change you're making. Not going to allow that. Uh, but I think you just have to constantly be trying to clean things up and improve them, even if it's only small improvements, while you're in there fixing that bug that has a desperate customer waiting for it. You make a good point around the culture aspect of like a team. And so one of the things I think you mentioned around the idea, if you make, the goal is let's make as few changes as possible because we're afraid we're going to break something might be one of those things. I think another reality that we often face is the the more changes you make for um you know, that you're going to get maybe peer review, like a pull request to another person on your team or other people on your team, the more it encompasses, the slower it is to get actually that approved because that person needs to get their head deeper into the weeds of being like, what is, what else have you done here while we're here? And like, how is this going to impact things? So that just takes more time to review that work. So there ends up being this kind of like interesting counter problem of, uh, well, let's not try to do too much into a pull request. So, cause it's going to take too long to get that shipped because someone's going to need to spend more time wrapping their head. So we want like the quick, I actually spoke to someone not too long ago, another person on the podcast, and they were talking about how they're trying to get really, really small bite-sized pull requests because the bigger ones just get stuck for a long time within teams. And they're like, well, I can't finish that. And then if it takes too long to come back to you, you forget what your context was when you're working on the thing. And you're like, wow, well, whatever. Kind of, kind of creates this weird side effect of uh, keeping things small so that it's easier to improve. So what to do about that? The one possibility is submit a couple of smaller pull requests rather than one big one. So do your cleanup as well as your bug fix. Now, the risk of that is people will say, I'm not going to waste my time on this reviewing these cleanup fixes. I've got too many bug fixes I have to review. So it never happens. But, but if you're not willing to do that, then you are just continuing to, continuing to accumulate technical debt. And so you have to decide, do you believe that the investment approach actually pays off? You know, do you believe if we spend extra time, a little bit of extra time today, that over time that's actually going to cause us to develop faster and we'll get all that time back and more? If you don't believe that, then, you know, you just do the quick and dirty fixes and 
good luck, you know, tell me what your company is so I can make sure I don't ever go work on that software. Uh, but if you believe it, then you have to really be willing to spend the time. You know, everybody, the, the developer has to spend a little bit of extra time to do that extra fix, and the reviewer has to be willing to spend a little bit of extra time to do that review. And you do that in the belief that it's going to pay you back later on. The sad thing is, we don't have a lot of, we don't have any data I, that I know of to make this in a case in a convincing way. And I, I'm not even sure how you collect the data. The challenges of trying to collect believable data are really difficult. So, you know, this is mostly based on logical arguments that people like me make, we, we believe is actually true. But, uh, but again, I can't point to data to prove that the time you spend now will pay back later. I feel fairly certain it will, but, but I can't prove it. I like to think about it in the terms of, we don't know what the future team's going to look like. The teams are always evolving, right? People come and go, switch teams in a company. So the people that are going to be working on it in a year or two may not be the people that are working on it now. And so we're kind of like temporary stewards of this thing. And we want to leave it in hopefully in a better place than when we found it so that they can pick it up and their life would be better. So how do we you know, pay it forward to the future generations of engineers on this particular project? And I know that necessarily humans struggle with some of that and a lot of other things in the, in the world of making sure that things are better for the future generations than what I mean, we inherited. So it's this interesting kind of balance there. Is this, do you feel like there's any correlation to just human behavior that gets messes some of this up? Oh, yeah. People tend to optimize for things that they can measure. And that's one of the problems here that, you know, I can measure if it takes me an extra day longer to get my bug fix done. I can't measure if I've just added 10 person years to the development the effort that will have to be invested in this project over the next decade. There's no way to measure those future costs, particularly if, if I'm making optimizations for today. And so it's really easy to convince yourself that the long-term costs won't be that high or that whatever it will save isn't going to be justified by the short-term costs I have to pay. You know, I, I think this is one of these things where either you have a culture or you don't have a culture. I mean, you have to have a culture in the organization where people buy into this idea. We'll be back with our interview with Professor Osterhout in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Professor John Osterhout. You know, hopefully there's a few people listening to this episode and they're sitting there thinking, I'm not the manager. I'm not going to like be able to go in and just say, this is what we're doing now, but maybe they could start making some incremental improvements themselves. Do you have any advice on what they could start doing to help move in the right direction? Is it is it as simple as just taking a little bit of extra time or do you feel like there needs to be more of a team dynamic conversation that needs to happen before you start going down that path? I would do all of the above. So the first thing to do is to ask yourself, are there stealth things I can just do myself that won't disturb the organization, but I can make a little bit of improvement myself? Like this idea of, of making a little extra fixes when I'm fixing bugs or, or maybe or adding documentation to code I happen to be working in. For example, if I once I figure something out, write it down so others can do it. So there may be things like that you can just do yourself. You don't have to get permission to do. But then there are other things that require more of an organizational commitment. 
I would say you start by going to your boss and you say, boss, are we investing the absolute most we can possibly afford to invest in order to improve our software quality so that it's easier to develop in the future? And then ask your boss, you know, how much are you comfortable investing? That is, how much slower are you willing to make things go today if we believe it will actually pay back and more in the long run? And I would bet most people would say, well, I could probably tolerate a 10% slowdown in current schedules. Probably couldn't tolerate a 2x slowdown. But just to get people thinking in terms of how much can we afford to invest. And, and my view about it is you do this in little chunks. You know, you're not going to suddenly go back and redesign the whole software. That's not realistic. And by the way, that probably wouldn't work very well. Anyhow, even if you could do it, it probably would be a bad idea. So you're just thinking just as complexity accumulates in little increments, improvements can also accumulate in little increments. And over time, they add up and the software suddenly becomes quite a bit cleaner. So if you get your, your boss to agree or you say, okay, we're gonna, we have this crunch, we have to meet a deadline, you know, we may have to do some ugly stuff to meet that deadline, but can we then budget a week after the deadline or two weeks, whatever is a, re whatever is a reasonable amount of time to go back in and fix some of the, the shortcuts we had to put in in order to meet the deadline? And I think if you ask questions like that, I think most organizations will start agreeing. You can get organizational buy-in as long as the increments are small. I think that's true as well. When it, and a thing that we often hear when we're talking to prospective clients that are potentially having us come in to help their their existing internal team, and they're always like, well, we don't want to slow down. Can you help us do this? Because we don't want to impact the schedules of our current employees working on these things. And I'm like, this is like an interesting problem where somehow by us coming in, it's going to like allow you to keep that velocity, perceived velocity, even though we're going to be working independently on some new thing. But we're going to need their time to work to understand things, which is like a thing that people underestimate as well. Like we are going to be like a new employee almost in a way. And like, we need help. We need, we need, you're going to slow down to have us come in in some ways. And so it's always this interesting kind of like navigation thing where I feel like they know this, but we're like the way you're kind of framing this and thinking about it, but it's like, but in reality, we can't go back and tell the product team or the, you know, whatever that we can't, we're going to slow down because they already think that we're running too slow as it is today. And so there's this interesting kind of catch-22 problem, I suppose, where they're like, okay, is it more bodies that's going to help make things better? There's been books written about this, I believe. But uh, the key takeaway, I think, for people listening to think through is like, you can have these conversations with your boss. You can advocate for these things. And I think that's a good thing. And But if, like, as you also mentioned, you can be stealth about some things and you don't need to ask for permission to do your job well. Sometimes I think we're always like, well, no one's asked me to write documentation. That just might be because no one's volunteered to do it either. You could be that first person to do that. So I'm a big believer in honesty and truth, which, of course, has made my life pretty unpleasant around the United States over the last four or five years with our political environment, but whatever. So if I were going into the company and they said, we don't want to disturb our developers, I would say, well, I got to be honest with you. There's no way we're going to be able to do much of anything without getting at least a little bit of help from your developers. And if your software is not well-documented, we may need a lot of help from them. Uh, then you can say, but you know, once we've, once we've gotten into the software, got some help, then we'll probably be able to work more and more independently. And we may also be able to clean things up so that future people like us won't have to disturb your software developers so much. But if you're not willing to accept any perturbation, then we're going to be working really, really slowly trying to get anything done. And become very, very expensive. Very expensive, yeah. 
Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe the problem is if you say that, they'll say, well, we're going to find somebody else. We can find somebody else that won't disturb our developers. When what they're really saying is, well, we're going to find somebody else who isn't going to tell us how much they're going to disturb our developers. So I don't, I don't know how much, you know, you have to fudge the truth a little bit in order to win a bid for a project that you may have to, I don't, I don't know. But my, my preference would be to be honest so everybody has their expectations set going in. That's always one of the, uh, we give our prospective clients a list of five to six reasons why you shouldn't hire us. And one of them is like, because you, you are drastically underestimating how much time you're going to need to have available to work with us. And that's like, you, we, can't, we can't work around that. We can't just work independently on something we need. There's no magic there. Yeah. yeah no, not at all. So I just want to take a moment to at least, you know, definitely plug your book, A Philosophy of Software Design. Um, is this like the second version that you've currently published at this point? That's right. Edition? Second edition was published about a year ago. Yeah. Nice. And for our listeners, what level of software developer do you believe this would would most benefit from it? And sub-question there would be, is it uh, language specific or is it pretty agnostic on that front? I would say it's appropriate for people once you have a modest amount of experience. So in the class that I teach, which the book is basically based on the class and now the class is based on the book, this is taught typically to senior undergraduates who've had a couple of internships and a bunch of heavy-duty programming classes, and they're able to grasp the concepts of the book pretty well. Anybody at that level on. And I think and it works best in the context of code reviews, where you can take the ideas from the book and use them when you're thinking about reviewing somebody else's code. The, the ideas in the book are fairly abstract. That's, that's why it's called a philosophy of software design. There, it, there isn't a simple seven-step recipe to great software. I don't believe such a recipe exists. And so, so the, these ideas may seem pretty abstract in the abstract, but if once you start applying them to code, then I think it's easier to see how they work. That's great. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for folks. You know, one of the things that I know you dig into in your book is advocating that we should kind of advocating for designing something at least two times before you decide or considering it done. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept? Yeah. So one of the truths about software is I think it's a lot easier to see a good design, recognize one than it is to produce one. Particularly when you're just getting started, when you're relatively inexperienced, but even for experienced people too. Whenever I'm designing a new class or a new module of some sort, I will typically try and think of at least two very different approaches to that. And then I'll compare them and I can see strengths and weaknesses of each approach. And then I'll either pick one or sometimes I'll pick a combination of the two to do. And it's a really effective way to do it. Here's one way of thinking about it. If you can tell the difference between a good and a bad design, which I think a lot of people can do that, then if you just produce two totally random designs and you can pick the better one, then you're probably going to have an above average design when you're done. Just law of, sort of law of random numbers. So I, I recommend doing that. And is that the something that students work on with other people on those designs? Or are they doing it themselves? And do the like? Do you have other aspects of how you kind of approach that? Is it just so that you can? How does someone know how to pick two drastically different approaches? Or is it just do you feel like they're building up enough understanding of like, well, get it to a point of working? Is it the second time? Do you notice any patterns that the second time they do it, they're they're, they are doing something drastically different, or is it kind of like an iterative version of the first one, but maybe a little looks a little, it smells different? I recommend doing this exercise before you've actually built anything. So try and do two different designs, at least sort of sketchy, outliney, high-level designs. What are the key abstractions, that kind of thing, before you've committed anything to code. And so one way to do it is just 
pick the first idea that comes to mind. That's design number one. And now ask yourself, okay, suppose suppose John Osterhout came here and said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to fire you and make sure you never get another job in the computer industry if you don't come up with a design that's very different from that. Would you decide you're going to switch and become an airline pilot or would you come up with another design? And, you know, what, what can you come up with that's as different as possible from that first design? Even if it's a bad design, actually, that's not a doing a bad design is actually not at all a bad way to find a good design. So just force yourself to try a different approach. And then it may turn into a dead end, but that's fine. You, you learn something from that. I think that's a, it's an interesting experiment. And um, it sounds like a, actually a way you're organizing uh, your, your curriculum there. And that's, I appreciate that. It's something you're helping, you know, your students kind of think about and as they go forward in their career beyond that as well. Do you do anything as well with students in terms of iterating on that work or on each other's work? Absolutely. Yes. The way the class is taught is it's kind of taught like a high school English class. At least when I when I learned English in high school, the way we learned was you write something, your teacher reads it, marks it up, full of red ink. She gives it back to you. You rewrite it. He or she marks it up again, and you iterate. And it's the, the way you learn is first making a stab. That's you learn from that. But second, getting feedback on that to hear what's good and bad about it. And then third, maybe most important, redoing it to incorporate the feedback. And that's when you really internalize the benefits of that approach. So in the software design class, uh, the way it works is the first third of the course, students build the largest piece of software that they can do in roughly three weeks. It's a few thousand lines of code. Then we do massive code reviews. Students review each other's code. I review every project. We do in-class code reviews. I meet with all the student teams. Then they go back and they revise. And then they, they also typically add some new features when they're revising. That's the second phase of the class. Then we have time for a third phase where they do another project from scratch, and we do a round of code reviews on that. But the key idea, again, is to get feedback and revision. And that's something that's missing from almost all of our other courses. Students rarely get feedback on the code in our programming classes. And even if they do get feedback, it's even more rare that they actually get a chance to revise to incorporate that. And so I think that's one of the key ways students learn. Is this something you've been able to get to a point where, you know, someone might need to then work off of someone else's code that in your in your like in your class in terms like and then someone else has to live with the reality of what you produce and like does this mix and then and then discuss like how you could have improved that in the first place? Interesting question. So when I first started teaching the course, I did that actually. The third project, what happened is I gave students somebody else's. We basically swapped projects. So students got other teams' projects and they had to add on to those projects. And then they got to see how other people had written stuff. And I eventually decided against that. And it was a good learning experience for the students, but they found it very frustrating because they felt like they were spending all of their time learning about and fixing somebody else's code. And they didn't have to have time to make much progress on their own stuff in the third phase. And so I finally decided I thought students would probably learn more about design if I let them do a new project on their own rather than working with somebody else's code. But you know, I have some misgivings about that because it, it's pretty instructive to have to work in somebody else's code. It's it's the uh, cold reality of, of our industry once you you know get that you get your job and such. The value of a very brief but very cold shower. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's it's uh, it's always like this interesting thing when I was mentioning we bring in interns and things and such like that, and when we have these conversations and they're like, "Wow, I'm so intimidated by what someone else you know produced." And I think in a, I don't know if it's an interesting thing. I think maybe a, a difference would be like students maybe feeling like, and I'm just kind of 
projecting some ideas here. I don't have anything to base this off of, but maybe developers and you know when they're going through the curriculum, they're not feeling super confident about their own skills to design yet, and so they're getting feedback. And so obviously your peers aren't going to be experts yet. Whereas I think when they, what I've noticed is like interns will come in or junior developers will come into their company and they'll work on some of our clients' projects and they go, wow, this thing is so big. And they assume that it must be really well designed because it's this thing that's persisted for 12 years. And and they're like, wow, oh, they, they, they kind of beat themselves up a little bit. I'm like, I don't really know how to make sense of this because it's really complicated. And I don't know how to like honor the way this was originally done. And then we have to, like, early on, one of the things you said at the beginning of the conversation was you're very skeptical of every code base you enter. And I don't know that most people coming in the industry are thinking about things as skeptically as they should be and maybe going, but, but why is it like this? Why does this make sense? And probably because your peers actually can't answer that question due to the lack of documentation and handover anyways. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing to navigate for people coming in the industry until they get some confidence, like, oh, nobody knows what they're doing. What I tell people is I say, it's not you, it's the code base. And another thing I tell students in general is if complexity is in the eye of the reader, not the writer. And so if somebody comes to you and tells you they're having trouble understanding your code, that's your problem, not their problem. And to try and say, oh, the code is actually makes a lot of sense, you just don't understand it. No, if they don't understand it, it's a problem with the code. And so I would, I would say even for an intern, Going in and looking at this large piece of software, you should not assume it's done right. And if you're confused by it, it doesn't mean it's, it's a problem with you. It means the code is hard to understand. I think you just have to, again, this comes back to my, my suspicion, not trust. That, uh, no, it, it's, it's not me. It's the code base. It's, it's a fault. You know, I think we, when you, you mentioned like when you go through like English courses and you're, you know, you're writing courses, you know, you might get feedback and you iterate on that. On, the, on your writing, you know, I'm always trying to be cognizant of um, when I'm writing a blog post or something, what's the reading level for this blog post to try to remove complex words and, you know, sentences and things that might make it harder for people to comprehend it, um, especially if they're maybe not English as, a, you know, as, their, as their first spoken language. And so that applies to software. And we do have a bunch of tools that can kind of highlight complexity but I think that doesn't always translate to like it becomes very difficult to translate that to like what's the comprehension of understanding this code and if I could just spend a little bit more time writing better documentation or better variable names or whatever the case might be or self-documenting code is the, the fallacy that we mentioned earlier as well. Actually, this whole philosophy, of course, applies in spades if you're a teacher like I am. If the students don't understand the material, it's not because they're dumb. It's because I did a bad job teaching. So similar thing that so if I write code that people can understand, it actually it's not their fault. It means I didn't write clear code. So as we kind of wrap up, I have a few quick questions for you, John. Is there a non-software development, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to a slight variation of what I normally say to people in the industry, but to your students to read that you think that would help them in their uh, in their career? There is one. In fact, it's one of the books that motivated my teaching this new class and eventually writing the book on software design. The book is called Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N. And what this book does is to debunk the myth of talent, that there really it's essentially no such thing as fundamental talent where either you have it or you don't. You know, what separates the top performers in a field from the average ones is not some fundamental notion of talent, but just how hard and effectively they've practiced. 
and it, it goes through example after example after example in various fields. It's just a really interesting book that uh, really gives you a sense of empowerment. You know, before I read this book, I'd been wondering, can we teach people to be great programmers? Or is this just a talent that they either have or don't have? And after reading the book, I realized if what Jeff Colvin says is true in all these other fields, it's got to apply to programming as well. And it's a fun book. It's a great airplane or beach book. Excellent. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your ruminations or on software development online? There is actually there is I don't have a blog, but there is a mailing list I created around the book where people occasionally write in and ask questions about the book and or related topics of software design. So if you could want to ask me a question about that, I could answer that for you. Oh, excellent. So you can send all your uh, questions to John through his mailing list, and that sounds great. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, John. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. As you can probably guess, I love talking about software design, and, and I love writing software. You know, It's one of the things in life I live for, so it's been great talking about it with you. That's wonderful. Well, thanks again, John. Have a good rest of your uh, afternoon, and we'll be uh, sharing your book across our social media as well in the near future. Thanks so much. Oh, oh, oh.